The Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. I'm Kate Sutter. I'm your host for today. And I am joined in the studio today by Dr. Tim Dribben, who is a pediatric emergency medicine specialist and an expert in anaphylaxis, which is our topic today. Um, We're talking about anaphylactic reactions and have asked Dr. Dribben to help us set the stage for what we're talking about and share um, share his knowledge and expertise with us. Dr. Dribben, thanks for being here. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to be on the podcast. We're so glad to have you. Um, and I think if we're just jumping right in, let's start with kind of the definition of what is anaphylaxis and why is it considered a medical emergency? Yeah, so I'll give kind of the textbook definition. Uh, anaphylaxis is a serious allergic reaction that potentially can be life-threatening and usually it progresses very rapidly. So once a patient develops symptoms over the next minutes to potentially hours, that reaction can progress and their symptoms can worsen. Uh, And the reason that anaphylaxis is important for patients, for families, for caregivers, is that it can become very serious and potentially can lead to uh, death. Although fatalities, I do want to reiterate, are very, very rare and exceedingly rare. But that's something that everyone who's at risk of anaphylaxis for their caregivers, it's always on their minds. For sure. As a parent, it's one of those things that is just always back there is, oh my gosh, what if this happens? Um, So what are some of the most common triggers for anaphylactic reactions? Yeah, the, co- the triggers are really differentiated based on whether it's a child or adult. In children, the most common reactions by and far are foods. So whether it's peanuts, uh, tree nuts, milk, eggs, that is what, in the emergency department at least, that is what we see most commonly. But uh, other triggers can include insect stings, so wasp, uh, uh, different medications as well, but those are less common. Um, so by and far with pediatrics and children, foods are the most common triggers that we see. So how does an anaphylactic reaction differ from a less severe allergic reaction? That's a great question. I think the challenge with managing anaphylaxis for clinicians, but also for families, is that there's no you know, blood work that we can use to say, are you having anaphylaxis? We really have to look at the symptoms that someone's having and say, do we think this is anaphylaxis and do we not? But one of the messages that we'd like to reiterate is that anaphylaxis is a more severe form of allergic reaction. So allergic reactions occur on a severity spectrum where they're mild to potentially very severe or life-threatening, and anaphylaxis is on the one end of that severity spectrum. So some patients may, for example, eat a peanut and they have hives. That would be a mild allergic reaction. And as those symptoms get worse, let's say the patient starts to developing trouble breathing or they're vomiting or they become dizzy, then that's when it becomes anaphylaxis because those symptoms are signs that the patient, uh, the, the patient could potentially have a more severe outcome or potentially, if it's not treated quickly, um, uh, pass away. So you mentioned a few of the symptoms um, that could indicate anaphylaxis. 
what are kind of that, that full range of symptoms that you're looking for as a clinician if you have a patient in front of you that would indicate that it is anaphylaxis? And this is what I think is so challenging, not just for clinicians, but, but patients, is that anaphylaxis can affect up to five different what we call organ systems. So most patients with anaphylaxis are going to have skin involvement. You know, that could look like hives. It could be itchy skin. It could be redness. Um, the patients will also sometimes have lip swelling, ting, uh, tongue swelling. So we call that uh, mucosal involvement. And then the other symptoms that are more worrisome that can really be very concerning for us is patients can have trouble breathing. So they can present where they're breathing quickly. They have trouble getting air in, trouble getting air out. So that's respiratory involvement. So that's the second organ system. The uh, third organ system is your cardiovascular system. So patients can feel lightheaded. They can feel dizzy. They can pass out, and they can actually develop what's called shock, where you're not able to get you know, blood to the organs that need it. So that's cardiovascular involvement, and that's very, very serious. Fortunately, in children, cardiovascular involvement is, much, uh, is less common than in adults. The fourth organ system is the gastrointestinal system. So especially with kids when they're eating foods, we frequently will see kids with vomiting, nausea, abdominal pain. Sometimes they can also develop diarrhea. And then the fifth one that's less talked about that we're, we're, is, is more recognized is neurologic involvement. So some patients, especially young kids, can have where they become drowsy or a little fatigued, and that's not related to other things that are going on. So there's those potentially those five different organ systems. And we think of anaphylaxis as when there's two of those organ systems involved that we think it's likely that someone has anaphylaxis. So this is what's really hard for families is they're having to say, oh, wow, my child has a rash. Now they start vomiting. You know, is that anaphylaxis? So that's frequently what we get. That one of the most challenging questions facing patients and their families is, is this anaphylaxis? And it's really hard during these stressful scenarios where there's a, you know, a, a child could be crying, upset, looking ill for a, a parent or a caregiver in the, the, the moment to say, is this anaphylaxis? And then the most important thing is, should I give an epinephrine auto-injector or an EpiPen? So you said that of the five systems, if there's involvement of two, that kind of is the the consideration that there's anaphylaxis. So it could be skin, mucosal, and gastrointestinal and still be anaphylaxis. Um, because I think that there's kind of a misconception that there has to be respiratory involvement, or that's kind of what people first think of. Um, is that true that it, it can still be an anaphylactic reaction, can be anaphylaxis even if there isn't the, the respiratory involvement? You're correct. In kids, actually, I would say we don't see respiratory involvement as often. The most common thing is because the, 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 the allergens that we're seeing are usually food is vomiting or you know the gastrointestinal system plus skin involvement or swelling of the, you know, the face or the lips. We definitely see kids who have wheezing or what's called strider where they're struggling to get air in. Um, but uh, yes, for it to be anaphylaxis, you do not have to have respiratory involvement. Um, and then cardiovascular involvement we see less commonly. It's more common when you start to reach the adolescent ages. And then in adults, it's more common. But that is one of the most serious and concerning features. So if a patient were to become um, uh, dizzy or pass out, um, that would be a, a sign that they are having anaphylaxis. And currently, cardiovascular involvement is the only organ system where you only have to have cardiovascular involvement 
to um, what we consider have anaphylaxis. So for example, if a patient with a known peanut allergy eats a peanut accidentally and then passes out, we would say that's anaphylaxis, even if they don't have any other symptoms of anaphylaxis. So that's an uh, important thing. But as I'm communicating this, you can see how complicated this is, it right? Is. Yep. This is complicated for clinicians. And I think, um, I think most allergists, emergency medicine doctors recognize that it's, um, we're, we're tricking ourselves if we believe that patients and families can confidently and reliably recognize this and make challenging decisions in real time. So I, I, I really feel for patients and families out there trying to make these, these, um, these decisions. So you mentioned known allergies. So if there's a, a patient ha- who has a known peanut allergy, um, they're likely to have an EpiPen available that they can administer if these symptoms start. Um, what about somebody who's having a first reaction and it's, they're seeing some of these symptoms that you described? What's the next step for a family? Yeah, for a family or for a teacher or a caregiver, let's say, you know, it's someone at a sporting event, you know, the first step is if someone's concerned that someone's having an, uh, a serious allergic reaction or anaphylaxis, would be either to call 911 or go to the ne- uh, nearest emergency department. Um, and uh, by calling 911, emergency medicine, uh, EMS providers can evaluate the patient, uh, and then they can decide if they need to administer epinephrine at the scene, and then they can transport them to the nearest emergency department. Um, the other thing is in some schools, some schools actually have what are called stock epinephrine devices. So these are devices that are there that can be used for anyone, not just a patient with a known allergen. So these can be very helpful as well because we know that in some schools someone may not ha- uh, be known to have a food allergen and they could, let's say, ingest an allergen and then have their first time anaphylaxis in a school. So if that were to happen, a school nurse or a school worker would be able to use that stock epinephrine device and uh, deliver it quickly for the patient and hopefully result in better outcomes. So we've been talking about the epinephrine and the EpiPen. And so what is the role that that plays in the treatment of anaphylaxis? And like, how quickly should we use it? What needs to happen after it's been administered? Like the, just kind of what is that experience around using it? Yeah, we always want to emphasize for patients and their caregivers that epinephrine is the first line treatment for anaphylaxis. You know, above anything else, if anyone ever thinks someone is having anaphylaxis and they have an EpiPen there, they should give it immediately. And I always stress to families as well that if you are concerned that someone is having anaphylaxis and you think it is, there's really no downside of administering that epinephrine pin. You are not a trained healthcare provider. You don't have the equipment we do to fully evaluate someone. And in a community setting, we'd rather have you err on the side of giving it than not giving it. Um, they're incredibly well tolerated. So that's the, the thing that we always want to emphasize. And then most people who have uh, auto-injectors, they have two devices with them. So they come in twin packs. And that's because 90% of reactions will resolve with just one epinephrine um, dose. However, t- up to 10% will require a second dose. So we always want to make sure that people have two auto-injectors handy, that in case their symptoms are not improving after that first uh, device is used, that they, after 5 to 15 minutes, they can give a second dose of epinephrine to hopefully resolve, uh, to resolve those symptoms. And what would be indication um, that the second one is needed? 
Um, the indication that the second one's needed is that the symptoms that the initial epinephrine device were used for are persistent. So let's say someone is having vomiting and they're having hives and then you get that first dose and they continue to be vomiting and the hives aren't getting better, we'd say, you know, you should give the second dose, you know, if it's been five to 15 minutes. But sometimes symptoms can actually worse. So that patient may initially have had vomiting hives, you give the epinephrine device, all of a sudden maybe they become dizzy, they pass out or they develop trouble breathing. And if those worsening symptoms develop, we really wanna make sure that that patient gives, uh, receives that second dose while someone's also uh, calling 911 or taking them to the emergency department, given that if you're needing a second, uh, if you need any epinephrine device, we'll, we'll get to this. Our current recommendations are to go to the emergency department, but especially if you get that second dose, you uh, need to go to the emergency department because that could be a sign that you're having a more severe reaction uh, where you need to be evaluated by a medical specialist. And just to inject, pardon my pun here, really, really quickly, we're using the term EpiPen, which is actually a, a like, it's a brand name of an epinephrine, epinephrine injector. Um, what are some of the others? And we'll continue to use the term EpiPen because that's what people know, but um, th there are others on the market, right? You're correct. Yeah, there's generic, we call them epinephrine auto injectors that are on the market. Um, and then there's also another brand called AviQ, which is an auto injector, and that can help facilitate administering the medication by having different prompts of the patient and caregivers, which can be helpful. But a lot of times, you know, in the emergency department, what auto injector someone gets may be dependent on what insurance they have and coverage like that. So um, the important thing is that they have an auto injector. You know, um, the auto injectors are um, all effective, um, and, and not uh, it's not as important what uh, brand they have or whether it's generic. And then of note, interestingly, that there's more work that's coming uh, to try to develop different d uh, uh, ways of administering epinephrine that do not require a needle injection, given that um, mm -hmm. patients, families have what we call needle phobia, that no one mm -hmm. wants to get um, to give a shot. Um, so there's different devices, potentially, such as administering epinephrine through the nasal route or even a sublingual film. However, none of these have been FDA approved, but we're hopeful that in the future these different alternative uh, devices uh, can be developed to try to overcome that needle phobia and to hopefully ensure patients get timely um, epinephrine to prevent uh, adverse outcomes. And so talk to me a little bit about... Um why it needs to be administered quickly. Like what's happening in the body when you administer the epinephrine? Yeah, and, and the, the fear is that if there's a delay in administering epinephrine, the reaction can get worse. So that patients may initially have more mild symptoms and then it progresses where they develop symptoms that um, if not recognized and managed could be life-threatening. So if a patient is having mild symptoms and then they don't get epinephrine, that reaction may progress where they start having develop, uh, trouble breathing, their airway may close up, or they may go into the point of having shock where they're not perfusing their brain or their heart or other vital uh, systems. So the idea is that if you try to administer epinephrine in a timely way, it will prevent the reactions from worsening and hopefully improve outcomes. Most of the data that we have is, is not super high quality data, but the, the consistent theme seems to be that for patients that have anaphylaxis, if there's a delay in administering that epinephrine, um, that has been shown to be a risk factor for poor uh, outcomes. So if you have it, give it. 
That's where we say if you have it, give it, and then if the symptoms uh, persist or worsen, repeat that dose of epinephrine, which is critical. And the other important message that we try to reiterate that we see this a lot with both healthcare professionals and um, uh, citizens in the community is that people like to try to give antihistamines, so Benadryl, Zyrtec, and not give the epinephrine. They wanna try that first and see, you know, will that make the patient better? We always wanna reiterate though, if you are concerned that someone's having anaphylaxis, give the epinephrine. Never give an antihistamine in place of giving epinephrine. I just really wanna emphasize that because that is a common thing that we see uh, in the emergency department and allergists see as well. They're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. Epinephrine will save a life. Antihistamines have a role in managing some symptoms. They can help with itching, they can help with ah hives, but they should never be uh, a substitute for timely epinephrine, and they should never replace uh, repeat epinephrine as well. So what needs to happen after an epinephrine injection has been given to a patient? Sounds like close monitoring to see if that second one is needed. And then after that, what should families do? Yeah, current guidelines stipulate that if someone receives epinephrine, that they should call 911 or go to the nearest emergency department. Um, and the reason for that is that there's a subset of patients that their symptoms will get worse or that their symptoms actually will come back and they need to be monitored in an emergency department. However, these guidelines have been recently questioned uh, given that for patients that receive epinephrine in the community and they have access to another auto-injector and that they have an adult who can observe them, that going to the emergency department is often what we consider a low-value um, effort, that sometimes patients come into the emergency department, their symptoms have resolved, and they just sit there. So there's work that our group and others are doing to try to identify who are those patients that could potentially stay in, at home in the community and not need to go to the emergency department. However, there still needs to be more data to try to figure that out because we want to make sure that our recommendations are safe. We would never want someone to stay at home and not go to the emergency department and have a bad outcome that could potentially uh, have been prevented. So right now, you know, the, the current recommendations are if you give an auto-injection is to call 911 or to go to the emergency department. Perfect. So let's switch now to talking about prevention and what are kind of the, the most important tenets of preventing allergic reactions in general? The, the central tenets are for patients that have known allergens, so if they're allergic to foods or medications, obviously, is to avoid those allergens. So that is the, the, the most important thing. However, that can be really challenging. You know, if someone's going out to eat and they're in a restaurant where they can't ensure that there's not peanuts or another, you know, ingredient, that's really stressful for families. But the most important thing is to avoid exposure, because if you can ex avoid exposure to that allergen, then you're, you know, you're not going to have anaphylaxis. So that's, that's the most important thing. And then the other thing that's really essential is that patients, caregivers are trained on how do you recognize signs of anaphylaxis. And if in the case that you were to develop anaphylaxis, that you understand when to give epinephrine and how to give it, given that we know that timely epinephrine can prevent those bad outcomes. So that's, that's really important as well. And there are newer therapies that the allergists are developing. And again, I just want to reiterate that I'm, I'm an emergency medicine doctor. I'm not an allergist. So that anyone who has allergies, who's at risk of anaphylaxis, should really receive care by a trained allergist because the allergist can do testing to figure out what someone is truly allergic to, which is really important, not just what someone thinks they're allergic to, but what they're truly allergic to. They can counsel patients and their caregivers about avoiding those allergens. And then they can also have conversations about would a patient be a candidate for any uh, therapies 
to, um, you know, to limit their risk of developing anaphylaxis in the future. And some of those therapies include things like immunotherapy, such as oral immunotherapy, which is really designed to help someone develop tolerance that if they were to be exposed to something, that they wouldn't have a reaction or have a severe reaction. However, currently there's no therapies to cure patients with these allergies. So these are all therapies to hopefully help them uh, develop tolerance to that. But those conversations and the decision to initiate that would be uh, based on conversations with a, a patient's allergist. And then lastly, I would say is it's really paramount that you mentioned this, that patients who are at risk of anaphylaxis, that they have access to auto injectors, you mm -hmm. know, and this includes at the home or if the child's in school, that the school has access to that as well, because we know that, you know, accidental exposures happen and if they are to occur, that it's really important for families and patients to have access to epinephrine that can, you know, hopefully improve their outcomes. Can an allergy that presents kind of on the less severe end of the spectrum at first kind of change over time if there are additional um, exposures to that allergen and become anaphylaxis? That's a great question. And I think this is one of the hardest things that allergists have in emergency medicine doctors is that you know patients and their families want to know, what is my child's risk of having anaphylaxis? Or right. if they've had a mild reaction in the past, does that mean that they're safe from having a severe reaction in the future? Or conversely, oh, if they had a really severe reaction, does that mean anytime they're gonna get exposed, they're gonna have a severe reaction? And unfortunately, it's almost impossible to predict that. That there's been good data that shows that patients have actually had fatal reactions and they had never had a severe reaction before. So if someone having a mild reaction does not mean, does not protect them against having a future severe reaction. And that's really hard for families because we basically have to be able to say that we're, we're, we're unsure about that. Now, there are some risk factors that may make someone at heightened risk of having a severe reaction. So if you've had a life-threatening reaction in the past, you know, that likely is a potential risk factor. The same can be said of patients who have uncontrolled other health conditions. So if someone has asthma that's very poorly controlled, or they're needing to use their albuterol frequently, or they have really bad symptoms, if that patient were to have anaphylaxis, they may be at risk of having a more severe um, outcome. The same can be said of adults with anaphylaxis who have bad uh, underlying conditions such as heart disease, uh, emphysema, or COPD. Those are probably also risk factors for having uh, uh, worse outcomes. But our message to families, unfortunately, is that we cannot predict your child's future risk of having um, a bad outcome or a severe reaction, and that's why it's imperative for them to, to maintain you know, strict what we call allergen avoidance and always to have access to uh, an epinephrine, an EpiPen, or auto injector. Be prepared. Be prepared. I like it. It's always a good message. And I feel like being prepared helps a family too, because it's like, if it happens, I know what to do. And I have the tools that I need to be able to respond if needed. That, that's correct. And I think the thing that's challenging to communicate about anaphylaxis is that we want people to be prepared, right? But we also want people to live their lives and not live in uh, such a degree of fear or anxiety that it really impedes their quality of life. Because yes, people are at risk of anaphylaxis, but as I said from the beginning, fatal anaphylaxis is exceedingly rare. So I, we do want to emphasize that most reactions are on the less severe side and patients have great outcomes. But again, it's those minority of patients that have the very severe um, outcomes and unfortunately, um, sometimes those can be hard to prevent. 
So what about challenges or misconceptions kind of surrounding anaphylaxis and this whole idea of severe allergies? Um, Is there anything that you find yourself kind of clearing up um, misunderstandings? I think one uh, misconception is that there's always agreement about what anaphylaxis is, even from healthcare professionals, Mm. because I think it's very easy to uh, judge decisions people make about whether to give an EpiPen or not. But the truth is that even among emergency medicine doctors or allergists, there's frequently inconsistencies about whether they think someone has anaphylaxis or whether an EpiPen is needed. So the confusion that patients, their caregivers feel is very much felt in the healthcare profession as well. So I just want to kind of level set with that, that this is a, this is a challenge. The other thing is just to reemphasize that we don't expect patients, their caregivers to be, you know, perfect. If they're concerned that someone's having an allergic reaction that may be life-threatening or that their child looks ill, we want you to err on the side of giving epinephrine. Um, it's going to hopefully resolve their symptoms. And again, the patient will tolerate it that well. So again, we don't want a few people to feel bad about um, giving their auto injector. And like I said as well, it's this balance of this this fear and this risk. Yes, anaphylaxis does occur and fatal reactions do occur, but those are really, really uncommon. And I think sometimes that's been misconstrued in the, the media uh, that all reactions are going to be life-threatening, and that's really not the case. So uh, hopefully with good access to auto-injectors and good education and training that parents and the caregivers can manage these reactions safely and effectively in the community as well. Are there resources in the community or organizations that can help um, if families are interested in learning more or um, need to understand how best to access the medicine that they need? Yeah, I think the first thing that's most uh, imperative is that patients with allergies or who are, uh, are suspected of having allergies see an allergist. You know, allergists, this is their field of expertise. They're going to be equipped at, first of all, diagnosing, does the patient truly have an allergy, right? Because we don't want someone to be labeled as having an allergy when they really don't, right? That's mm-hmm. not beneficial to them or to society. Um, and those a- allergists can then help, you know, confirm, do they really have a, uh, an allergen? And then they can do also do really a helpful education for patients and for their caregivers. And that can be a, a service and continuity over their, the child's life to um, continuously re-educate patients and caregivers about how to recognize and manage anaphylaxis. So I think that's imperative that anyone uh, who has anaphylaxis or is at risk of anaphylaxis should be you know, seen by an allergist. Um, there's other really helpful resources that are out there. The American Academy of Pediatrics has great resources. The American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology on their website has wonderful things. And there's also great uh, foundations that I do work with, such as the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America that has tremendous resources on their website that can be really invaluable to patients and their caregivers. I think you have answered all the questions that I had prepared for us today. Um, Is there anything that we haven't mentioned that you think um, is important or, you know, key takeaways to reiterate one more time as we close out our conversation? No, I think you've covered it beautifully. I think the things that we always want to reemphasize is that epinephrine is always the first line of therapy. If someone is concerned that someone's having anaphylaxis, please give that epinephrine in a timely way. And don't use uh, Benadryl or Zyrtec in place of an auto-injector. And then again, the importance of seeing allergists. I think allergists are tremendous in the long-term care of patients who are at risk of anaphylaxis and can be an invaluable resource for them and their loved ones. And as an ED 
physician, um, as somebody who sees kiddos who come in that, you know, maybe by the time they get to you, they don't need to, they should still come, right? If, if there's a question, we're always happy to see them in the emergency department. We're always happy to see them in the emergency department. And I am excited that, you know, with our research group and the research of other experts across the U.S. and globally, that hopefully in the next, you know, years that we're going to uh, continue to improve and optimize the care of anaphylaxis. Because one thing I think we know is that anaphylaxis is a very, what we call, heterogeneous condition. So there's a lot of different severities and that patients need tailor management. So we really need to figure out, again, you know, who needs to come to the emergency department, who doesn't. But at this time, we, you know, need to reiterate that our current recommendations are that for patients with anaphylaxis need to be cared for in the emergency department. But hopefully one day um, we'll have new science to uh, optimize that care and bring better care to patients and their loved ones. I have thoroughly enjoyed learning so much today. Thank you for joining us, Tim. We appreciate your time and your expertise. It's been great to be on the podcast. Thanks for all the work you do. Absolutely. Thank you. You've been listening to Young and Healthy, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. This episode of Young and Healthy was recorded on October 18, 2023. The content of the Young and Healthy podcast is intended for educational and informational purposes only. This episode was produced by Symphony Fair Harris, and our theme music was created by Stephen Greco. Thanks for listening. Follow Cincinnati Children's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.